0: You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 30. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. And that was the last time you'll hear our special Vaquita theme song, an original tune from Ben Mirren composed using actual vocalizations of the Vaquita porpoise. Today, on our final Vaquita-themed episode of this month, we're talking with Lorenzo Rojas-Barracho. Despite the warnings of some of his graduate advisors, Lorenzo has truly become Mr. Vaquita. He is the head of marine mammal conservation and research for the National Institute of Ecology and Climate Change in Mexico, and he has dedicated more than 20 years of his life to saving the vaquita. Lorenzo has a fascinating perspective on vaquita conservation, and it's particularly interesting to hear about how the social and political system in Mexico has shaped this issue. Lorenzo has had many struggles in his efforts to teach both policymakers and the general public in Mexico about this species— One of his greatest challenges was simply convincing people that the vaquita actually exists and hasn't yet gone extinct. Let's jump into this interview and hear from Lorenzo. I'm here with Dr. Lorenzo Rojas Bracho, who is the Head of Coordination for Marine Mammal Research and Conservation at the National Institute of Ecology and Climate Change. How are you doing today, Lorenzo? Fine, Matt. Thank you very much. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Um, My first question for you is, uh, I want to get just a little bit of background. Um, I'm wondering how you first became interested in marine mammal conservation.
1: Oh, that has a long story. Let's hear it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, well, as many of my generation, I was a little kid, and I saw TV programs uh, about... Whales and dolphins, uh, those were in Mexico. And besides the Cousteau programs, there were other nature based programs that I really enjoyed. And then I had the opportunity to visit SeaWorld in San Diego years ago. And I just fell in love with the animals. So I started m- first as a marine mammal trainer. And then I realized that I didn't, I, I was not happy seeing animals in captivity. So I decided to go to school, study biology, and tried all the time to work one way or the other with marine mammals. So we had a professor from Chile who had been or was an expert in large whales. So I did my bachelor's thesis with fin whales from the Gulf of California. And then... From one to the other took me finally to Vaquita when I was doing my PhD. Uh, several people had an influence in me getting to Vaquita. At that time, Bob Brownell was the head of protected resources at the Southwest Fishery Science Center. And then it's, uh, he was an expert, had been concerned about Vaquita, so he was a big uh, push in my in my life and Andrew Deason who was the head of the genetics lab also and I went once to meet someone that I didn't realize is going to be working together for many years and it was Barb Taylor she was doing her PhD or finished her PhD at that time I went to her office trying to f- find out how to use genetics to come with arguments for conservation of baquita, but also we didn't now at that time how many vaquitas there were so i was trying to approach these from genetic side because at that time we were thinking that surveys with uh, boats were not working properly so anyway that, it's that's more or less how i got into marine mammals and then vaquita
0: fantastic yeah and um yeah Do- dr barbara taylor was our guest on uh last week's episode of the podcast and um, yeah, she told the same story about her first uh, meeting with you, um, and and how that sort of inspired her to uh, become involved in vaquita in conservation. Um, so it's it's neat to hear your side of uh, of, of that interaction as well. Um, so how how long ago was this? How how long have you been involved in vaquita conservation?
1: Vaquita conservation, I. Trying to that that that's always a tough question. I think I started. Um, originally, I was starting. I was doing my PhD thesis on humpback whales. So it was when Bob Brownell came to the lab in La Jolla when I kind of shifted to Vaquita, and also a professor at, in, in Mexico also told me that it was ridiculous that nobody was working with Vaquita. So probably that was ninety. Early '90s, I think, and we had very little idea of abundance of vaquita. Uh, threats were being discussed, and I th- so I th- yeah, it must have been '91, '93, about those years.
0: Okay, and so you mentioned that that very little research on the vaquita had been done before that time. Um, I mean, why, why do you think that is? Um, uh, you know, why, why is it that up until this this point in the early 90s, uh, no one had really taken too close of a look at this species?
1: Well, there were strong... and, uh, I mean, we knew uh, a little bit about uh, the life history of Baquita. I mean, there was Omar Vidal, who's now with WWF, who started doing the first efforts in Mexico, and Catarina de Agrosa, who was who estimated the bycatch in the, I think it was also early 90, 90s. But at the same time, it's not an easy animal to work with. It, you don't. It's not like dolphins that you see them leap out of the water or approach boats. They're kind of shy, so it, it was difficult to approach them. And people try different ways to estimate the abundance of Baquita. And they use small boats and sailboats, even air balloons, whatever you can imagine. And nothing seemed to work. And I think people were getting discouraged about being able to study vaquita, and they were more concentrated in efforts and sometimes about behavior, which is very hard to work with. But what we needed was estimates of abundance and population trends, and that's what I I was more looking at. That and it's expensive to do a population survey. I mean, it's it's in the order of a couple of or three million US dollars. So it's not a money that everybody has to go out and do a large ship survey. And and so finally at the end, uh, thanks to Team Gerardette, we started to understand better the abundance of Baquita and to Jay Barlow, who's uh, uh, Barb's uh, husband. And I think that kind of triggered more research, and I was fortunate enough to get enough samples of vaquita that were by-cutting gillnets. And those were those vaquitas were used in a way to study biology and life history of vaquita, and I was able to do some of the genetics. So I think it was a group of people getting involved and started pushing research, even with uh, the minimum resources we had at that time.
0: Gotcha. So... I mean, you, you you mentioned as well in there that there there was no good population estimate for the vaquita at that point in time when you first started working with the species. Um, but I guess I'm just wondering, like, what your sense at that time of what was going on with uh, the vaquita porpoise was. I mean, were you were you worried that this species that these species numbers, you know, that the population numbers were very low? Um, were you concerned that they could be declining at a rapid rate? Um, I, I, I guess I'm just looking for sort of a, like a, a general picture of, um, the, the, the concern that you had for this population.
1: Yeah. I, 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 at that time we did, uh, even though we didn't have, uh, exact estimate of abundance, it, I had done, I was an observer in many boats or or many surveys or oceanographic cruises and covered the whole Gulf of California at, uh, in started working those boats probably late 1980s. And, I mean, you could see a bunch of marine mammals, large whales and uh uh, dolphins, sea lions, but we saw very little vaquita. So it was clear to me at that time that something was wrong there. So many surveys, so many people going to the Gulf to do marine mammal surveys, and we had very little uh, sightings of vaquita. So it was clear that it was uh, a, a scarce uh, animal. And at that time, I think uh, Jay Barlow and Silvers did some aerial surveys, and the density of animals was very low. I think it went from 2 to 7 animals per every 1,000 kilometer. which if you compare that with a Harbor Porpoise in California waters, that was like 47 animals per 1,000 kilometers. So we didn't have the abundance estimate, but it was clear that... Something was going wrong. Uh, Years later, uh, while I was at at the lab uh, in La Jolla, uh, 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 Jay Barlow and others published the first abundance estimate. It was kind of an opportunistic estimate. They were doing a large cetacean survey or marine mammal survey in the Gulf of California. They got to the upper Gulf. They had uh, nice weather. And they were able to do some uh, uh, some transects or to look at look for vaquitas, and they estimated at that, that time the population, I think, two hundred and twenty four or twenty five animals. So it became very clear now at that point, having all those set of data, and that the uh, genetic diversity was very low, that something was really wrong, and. I was proud, and I'm still proud, of course, that Mexico has done a lot of work to prevent the extinction of marine mammals. So, uh, elephant seals were in the brink of extinction, and the Mexican government was the first government to protect them. We had also Guadalupe four seals were down in numbers. There many circumstances played also an important role to recover these uh, fur seals. But it, it, in a way, Mexico protected those. Uh, we had the first whale sanctuaries for, in the world for the breeding lagoons of gray whales. So in my mind, it was impossible to think that we would let us, the only endemic species of marine mammal in Mexico go extinct. And I had been taught at that time when I was a student that the problem with the vaquita was the lack of flow of the Colorado River. Basically, that meant that because the water of the Colorado River was diverted to urban and agricultural uses, and mainly in the U.S., then that meant that there were no nutrients coming into the upper gulf, so the productivity of the gulf was very low. And that was how I was educated. But then when I started working on genetics, I had about 35 or 40 baquitas that were by in gillnets and that I used for my PhD thesis. So uh, it was like, Jesus, uh, (laughs) I don't see how the Colorado River is going to play a role here because vaquitas had full stomachs, they look healthy, they were not emaciated. So everything, and then I talked to oceanographers uh, in the U.S. and Mexico and everybody agreed that uh, there were many mechanisms in the upper Gulf to bring nutrients to it, even if there was no river. So I, I concluded that, well, there's something wrong with these, And at that time also, uh, I had a call from who was the director of the Fisheries Institute in Mexico. And they were responsible for marine mammals in the 1990s. And he called me to his office and he wanted to talk about vaquita. So I gave him my views and I was writing a paper about risk factors uh, on vaquita and Barb Taylor and I were, wrote, wrote it together and published that one and we had concluded that the only risk factor that was going to drive vaquita to extinction was bycatch in gillnets and Dr. Antonio Diaz de Leon, who was the director of the institute said okay so what, what should we do and I said I think the best is if we have an international recovery team with world known experts from the US Canada Europe and Mexico, and we go through what we know of, of Baquita and see what we agree and propose the recovery plan. And so he gave me green light. It was not an easy people, many people opposed. I mean, for most Mexicans or well that's not true for many government officers in the federal government in Mexico, particularly the fisheries sector, and other groups. They wanted to blame it to the Colorado River because there was a way to blame it to the U.S. So if paquita goes extinct, is a U.S. problem. It's not, it's not our problem. And so we created this international group with U.S. scientists, and as I mentioned, from Europe and Canada, we looked at risk factors and what we knew about Akiita biology, and we agreed. And everybody agreed that the main risk factor and the only risk factor that might drive vaquita to extinction is bycatch in, in gillnets. And so we started working then on a recovery program and how to we could ban gillnets. But anyway, the whole uh, answering your question, it was I was feeling so bad about Mexico losing these unique species that I. Got involved in more that I I thought I was going to get involved. I remember uh, Oli Ryder, who was one of my PhD committee members, told me Lorenzo, don't don't become uh, Mr. Vaquita. That's not good for you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm I'm happy that you did not take that advice to heart, <laughs> um, because uh, you've. Over the years, have done you know some really important research on Vikita and played this central role in um, these conservation and recovery efforts. Um, you know, I, I wanted to sort of bring up this, uh, I, I guess, this interesting point that uh, that Barbara Taylor mentioned in our interview with her. Um, and so you were you know you were just talking about sort of this discovery that. Uh, this discovery of what the real cause of the decline of the vaquita was, or, you know, what, what this factor is that that could be driving a decline and a potential extinction of the species as this bycatch issue. Um, and it, it's fascinating to hear uh, sort of the debate um, over that. And, you know, that, that sort of desire to, to blame the issue on um, the, the, issues relating to the Colorado River, um, which, I mean, makes sense, right? I mean, without sort of that, uh, that research that you had done on bycatch, um, you know, that, that, that would seem like a very believable hypothesis. Um, but anyways, this, this point that Barbara Taylor brought up, um, is related to, um, sort of this discovery of how rapidly the vaquita population was declining, um, and she explained that it wasn't until this acoustic, this remote acoustic monitoring program was set up, um, that a true understanding of how rapidly the Vikita was declining, uh, came, you know, was sort of realized. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, asked her this question of like, what was the, you know, what's the biggest surprise that you've had in your research with Vikita And she said it was, you know, and it, it surprised me that 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 she said this. That you know, her biggest surprise was seeing, um, seeing that eighteen percent per year uh, rate of decline when the data started coming in from the remote acoustic monitoring program in the upper Gulf. And I guess I'm wondering if if this was as big of a surprise to you as, as it was to her. You know, I mean, what what was did did you have a similar reaction to? Uh, to to this research from the acoustic monitoring program coming in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, uh, When I, uh, as I was saying, um, doing a a Vaquita survey, it's really expensive. I mean, both time and uh, observers is really expensive. So we were looking at an option that would be cheaper and we could do it as precise as possible. So it came with uh, doing a, Uh, monitoring in acoustic way the the vaquita, so uh, I I guess Bart probably explained that. But anyway, detecting uh, vaquita makes noises or clicks to find food, and we can take advantage of those clicks to detect vaquitas. So I have to say that most of the vaquita research or all of the vaquita research has been a teamwork in which Barb has pl- played a central role, but so uh, other colleagues uh, like Jay Barlow, Tim Gerardet at the Southwest Fisher and Science Center. And uh, w- we made a cruise to try different equip- uh, acoustic equipment and see which was the, the one that worked best to detect vaquitas. And we had uh, Nick Treganza from the UK and Tomakamatsu from Japan. So we tried all everything. And finally, we found these what we call seapods, which seems to work great. And we started doing the research, and we could see uh, actually what triggered probably the most important conservation factors in, in the early days was as Armando, who is a fantastic acoustician and very smart biologist that works in my program, his PhD thesis was uh, using acoustics to detect population trends. And he called me once and said, Lorenzo, look at these. Uh, the population is going down badly. And uh, and I said, well, let's call the minister right now. And I, I think at that time, I can't remember the figure, but it was about 8% per year, the population was declining. And it was already a shock. It was a big shock. And uh, uh, we called the minister at that time of environment and explained me what we have. And that's how the Vaquita, the first Vaquita refuge started. It was a smaller area than what we have now. And that was my first shock to see that, that the population was declining that bad. But then um, many of the boats, there was a recovery program to reduce uh, fishing effort and get many nets out of the water. And as we were doing the acoustics, the population seemed to decline l- less faster, but still was declining. And so that was my perception, like we went from 8% to about 5 or 4% decline. It was, okay, we're not doing perfect, but it's better than what we were. And when we finally had uh, the first data set of, the, of a larger acoustic uh, monitoring program that we put uh 40 to 60 acoustic detectors in the main area of Paquita Concentration, we sat down in La Jolla in, in in a lab there, and we formed what we call the expert panel, which is our top scientists worldwide that were able to help with the statistical analysis, mainly spatial statistics, because we had to lose some equipment to illegal fisheries. So we got some gaps in our... Dataset. So these uh, friends came, and we all worked three days doing the modeling. And when the number came out of minus eighteen point five percent per year, I oh god, I, I I probably have never felt so bad in my life. I I was thinking there's something must be wrong here. We have to redo things or. And now uh, people look at it. Uh, the experts and Armando went through the exercise again, and it was eighteen point five percent. So it was thirty seven percent per year in the last two years, which was twenty fourteen when we had that, uh, that 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 info. So it was it was a killer. I remember closing my eyes and putting my hands in my head and said, "Jesus, well." The, this is not good. We, we were not supposed to be at this where we are, and I was thinking myself, what happened? What happened that have we done things wrong, or something must have happened? And certainly, one of the explanations was the illegal fishery for totowa that exploited in those years because the prices for the swim bladder that we call it here buche. Raised to over eight thousand five hundred US dollars per kilo, so everybody went fishing for Totuaba. And the problem with the, with uh, the nets used for Totuaba is they're about the size, of uh, the mesh uh, size is about the size of a vaquita head, so they are they get entangled very easily. And some of the worst uh, kills of vaquita during. Years was uh Gilnets for Totowa, so uh, it, it was really depressing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I, 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 I I can't even imagine what, what that must have been like. I mean, and it, it it sounds to me like you were in a position at that point where you thought you had been seeing some of the fruits of your labor, right? You thought that, you know, the the data you had up until that point was um, w- was showing that that rate of decline was was decreasing, that, you know, these steps that had been taken already, setting up the Vaquita Reserve, were really having an impact, and then to get those results back and see that... Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I can't even imagine. it
1: um, yeah, so, was able um, Horrible, and it was even worse to realize that. When I started working or got interested in vaquita, uh, Totuaba was the killer of vaquitas. And then back to the basics, years later, there were again with uh, Totuaba illegal fishery going, swim bladders going to China. I mean when I was starting my thesis uh, Omar Vidal sent me a a list of vaquitas bycot and he registered I think seventy-seven Vaquitas that were bycot in Totova Gilnets in nineteen between nineteen eighty three and ninety-three. And that at least one hundred and thirty or hundred and twenty-eight vaquitas were killed from eighty five to 92, And from those, about 65 or 67% were killed in the Totoava fisheries. That was when I was starting working with Totoava. And then here we are, years later, exactly in the same situation. There's the Totoava. It's illegal. It's the China market again. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it's hard to explain. And as you say very clearly, my mind and our mind, I think most of us, was that we hadn't stopped the decline of Baquita, but we had reduced the speed of decline of the population size.
0: It's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about how this Tatuaba fishery has been an issue for so long. Um, and that, you know, even when you were just starting your work with vaquita, that that was, that was probably one of the biggest threats to vaquita populations at that time as well. Um, I mean, do you think that has always been the case and it's just that we didn't realize how great of an impact it's been having until recently? Or do you think that there was sort of a lull in the demand for Tetuaba and that it has sort of that demand has sort of skyrocketed recently because um, because of what's happening in China and the fact that those swim bladders um, are, are 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 Getting so much money in in that market.
1: Oh, I think the. I mean, gillnets. the 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 real Totowa fishery was long before I was even born. I think. And when we started working with Vaquita, there you could always see some Totowa nets I mean, they, it's really hard uh, anywhere in the in the world probably to ban completely a fishery. So there was a little of Totuaba here and there, but it was not a big thing and. Uh, one of the papers that Barbara and I wrote, I think my second paper, we estimated how much, how many vaquitas might have been killed in Tortuga and so It was like 52 vaquitas per year, which was the highest rate. And we took all the historic data for vaquita fisheries, and and uh, this was done from an experimental vaquita uh, experimental Totova fisheries by the fisheries department, which was a pretty dumb thing to do, by the way. But uh, then the whole thing declined. I mean, we were in the water. We went out to do field work, and use of very little nets. And I think what happened is that China drove extinct some of, at least one of the f- species that they used to use their swim bladder for this medical or medicinal soup that they use, the totoaba swim bladder. And I, I can remember the name. I think something like Baja Baja. And... They needed something to substitute that. And so they came down and, I mean, Chinese have been in Baja for years, and so they knew for a long time. And actually, fishing towns in the upper Gulf, like Santa Clara and San Felipe, were founded because of the Tatuaba fishery. So I think it exploded in some time. The Chinese market needed that. There was a big demand. I mean, there are records of soups, of, Plate of soup costing about ten thousand US. So I think it was the demand that it, that was this this explosion to have vaquita swim bladder that hit us badly. So in other words, yeah, it was more of a recent thing. I mean, certainly, as I said, we always had some records or reports from some illegal fishing here and there, but nothing like what happened two thousand and. And the end of two thousand eleven, two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, probably still now. Well, what we know is the swim bladder price has gone down, but still very high—five uh, thousand US. That's the last time I, the last time, last one I heard. So uh, still a, a lot of money if, if you had several uh, Totuabas.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and it, it's it's interesting to learn about the nature of this tetuaba fishery. Um, over time, you know, and, and you know, for example, I, I, ha- I had no idea until you just told me that, that, that these two uh, coastal towns were, were actually founded, you know, based around um, this fishery for Tetuaba, you know, probably long before the fish, this fish species was declared endangered and it became illegal to, um, to fish for them. Um, but yeah, it's it, 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 interesting to learn about the, the history of this fishery and how you know the, these interactions between the fishery and the wildlife in the, in the region. Um, and it's it's certainly a complex relationship. So, I'm curious to learn about some of the political issues that surround vaquita recovery in Mexico. Um, I'm, I'm sure that in your role as the head of coordination um, for marine mammal re- research. Um, I, I, I'm sure politics <laughs> plays a role in that, right? I'm sure that there's a lot of sort of, you know, communicating a lot of the research that's going on relating to Vaquita to folks that are involved in policy and, and trying to make sure that, you know, the best sort of political decisions are made to help protect the Vaquita. Um, I, I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, what the process has been like In order to get this uh, this two-year gillnet ban implemented,
1: I think there were several things. Uh, When I started working with vaquita, my surprise was not only that there was a denial to bycatch by many government officers in again federal and state level. Uh, governments uh, from Baja California, Sonora, and, and the government of Mexico, and of course by the fishery sector, and even researchers denied the exist- the bycatch problem. But my surprise came when I started to realize that they were denying the very existence of Baquita. So when I started, for many, there, Baquita never existed, or if it existed, it had to go extinct, so when we started working with that, and thanks also to the very good work that Omar Vidal and Lloyd Finlay's group started doing in Sonora, we had some data, but we had first to convince people that vaquita existed. And so bad that we had to do a special cruise just to film vaquitas and take photographs of vaquitas. Which, by the way, when we presented that in a meeting with fishermen, one fisherman told me that's, uh, that's Photoshop. And I said, well, if it's, it's Photoshop, I should have, I, I I need to have a vaquita from somewhere. And he said, oh, it's probably it's plastic. <laughs> so anyway, that's how we started. And it's been a long time. But then, I mean, it was clear that it existed. Uh, I mean, for many people, of course, it existed. But it was just this official position for many Persons from the fishing sector that thought that it was easier to deny the existence of vaquita and then you got rid of the problem. So we went from there to the existence of vaquita then to the acceptance that there were low numbers because uh, vaquita research took so long to develop. And uh, I mean, by now, probably vaquita from the most critical endangered marine mammal now in the world. But we know more of vaquita than we know for many other cetacean species that are more, much more abundant, so I think we know more of Baquita than probably any other critical endangered marine mammal species by now. But to give you an idea, when Baquita was discovered, then we didn't know how even Baquita looked like. It was not till I think um, mid-85, 80, 87, when it was described and we really knew how it looked like. People had not seen them, they are so shy and they spend so few seconds in the surface that people don't notice them. So. I mean it, there was some kind of justification to say that they doesn't exist, and those that were bicode they will just throw them away or bury them or whatever, so those uh, uh animals we had them in in uh in labs, and people didn't see them uh, here is a story for you, and I will not mention the names, but some time ago the person who was named by the president of Mexico some 10 years ago or more, he, uh, he was the head of agriculture and fisheries. And of course, he was denying the existence of paquita. So at that time, we recovered one of the most beautiful paquita we ever recovered. I mean, it was completely fresh. Like it looked alive. I mean, the colors and beautiful animal, a female. And it was huge. It was a bit longer than 1.5 meters. And we sent it to Mexico City. So they would present this vaquita to that Minister of Agriculture and Environment. And what at that time one of the officers in the government did, which certainly was not welcomed by the minister, they were in a breakfast in a restaurant. So they brought the vaquita in this, I don't know how you call this, it is... Charts or no? Where you carry the desserts?
0: Oh, sure, a platter, yeah.
1: Kind of a platter, but they have wheels, and then you push them. And
0: right, right.
1: So they put the vaquita there and covered it with a with with a piece of cloth, and they offered him desserts, and then they took the cloth out. It was a vaquita. Oh
0: my god!
1: And he got extremely angry. He just really got pissed off. But that made the point that vaquita existed. And that uh they were we were in, in the need of urgent action, so then I, I mean at that time the international recovery team called sirva was was uh doing very good work, was recognized widely for their good works and recommendations and it, we started slowly, very slowly um as I said first, agreeing that the main threat for the vaquita was bycatch. Then we started proposing to ban gillnets. nets, that took years, so the, because we couldn't ban gillnets, nets, then we were uh, given this Vaquita refuge, at least to protect it for, it, it was just an interim measure, let's have this area to protect Vaquita, the main area of Vaquita concentration, so we have time to develop alternative fishing gear and socioeconomic alternatives for fishermen, because it certainly is not fair to save Vaquita and send fishermen to extinction. So we had to work with the vaquita and, and with the fishermen, and that it was very hard to get economists to agree to work with us. It was, a, I mean, I went so many meetings to try to convince uh, economists to work with us, and they said yes at the beginning, but once they knew it was an isolated towns with very bad freeways, no uh, fresh water, and I mean, they, they lost their interest. But at the end, we got some very good economists, Enrique Sanjurjo, from World Life Found and others. And so we started doing some of the modeling to uh, find some alternatives for fishermen. And, and then came a very important program, the, which is called the PASE, which is a recovery program for vaquita. PASE is a recovery program for many species in Mexico, but the first one implemented was the vaquita. And and so that started working. It really brought uh, new energy to Lakita Conservation. They didn't ban gillnets, but at least they, they banned them in an area. The main strategy from the program was to buy out uh fishing gear and fishing license and compensate fishermen with that. And once they you gave them money you or some of the funds, then you will help them to build up a business. And some fishermen went to and opened uh, cyber cafes or uh, small hotels. It was a bad moment because the U.S. economic crisis hit hard in the U.S. And of course, less tourists came down and it was complicated for many fishermen to make a living under those circumstances, not fishing. But anyway, so, some have been successful. And then the other strategy was to compensate fishermen not to fish within the Vaquita Refuge. It was thus the hardest uh, and I think the, the worst part, all the time, and the weakest part for vaquita conservation has been uh, enforcement. And so, we, I mean, we lost a lot of equipment, of our acoustic equipment, to illegal gillnets. And then from there, it jumped to, I think, the most important aspect of all was when this new government that is now in power created the presidential commission of the presidency of Mexico, for the recovery of Bakita, I think that really changed because then we had a forum where we could present all our, all our work. In the past, we just sent it by memos and and art. We, we publish articles and send them to ministers, etc. But this time, that we all sat in one place, and it is when we found out that the population was declining, and we called for an urgent emergency measure to ban gillnets throughout. Vaquita distribution. It was the exclusion zone for vaquita, and and now here we are uh, with a gillnet ban. But I mean, the whole process was difficult. I was threatened several times by fishermen, by fisheries authorities. One wanted me in jail because uh, anti-Mexican activities, which I don't know why what that meant really. <laughs> but I thought I was doing something for my country. So it was. It came through a hard process, but uh, these authorities have taken very seriously. I mean, the president of Mexico was in San Felipe to launch the recovery program that had never happened.
0: Yeah, I mean, I- that that seems like a really hopeful step to me. The fact that um, the fact that the president was there to announce this program, this two-year ban, um, the fact that your efforts to convince the government to implement this emergency two-year ban. Um, which I understand, like, under normal circumstances, there would be a whole review process to go through before implementing something like this, but they were able to, you know, uh, call this an emergency action and get it started much sooner. Um, it, this all seems very hopeful to me, right? Um, but, I mean, the, the, the looming question is, I mean, you know, is, is this enough? You know, is this, is this enough to save the species, you know, even if enforcement is, is, is really good within the region? Uh, No, sadly,
1: I mean, certainly it's very positive to ban gillnets for two years. It's an emergency measure. Uh, But two years would not give time to recover vaquita. And we don't have the scientific instruments and methodology to detect a change in vaquita abundance down or up in just two years. I mean, vaquita produce a young every two years and even in the most optimistic cases you might add in those two years four or six vaquitas and we have no way to detect that so there are two things there one there's no time the two years is not enough time you have to ban gillnets permanently if you want to save the the vaquita there's no doubt about that so uh, that that's something that has to be very clear so, again, the, the uh, in the recovery team, we said very clearly that survival of vaquita will depend uh, on a permanent uh, gillnet ban. So, two years is a good start, and we hope that that will give opportunity during these two years to develop more alternative livelihoods for fishermen, including more alternative fishing gear. I mean, we have alternative gear for shrimp. And we never were able to test properly this alternative gear because this is a small-scale trawl to fish uh, shrimp. And gill netters would block uh, the fishermen that accepted to to change to this alternative gear. So they were never able to use it properly. They were boycotted by gill netters. But now that there are no gill nets, there would be time to improve the shrimp gill net Uh, fish uh, alternative gear it's a fantastic time to develop alternative gear for finfish which we don't have and although this is not very clear in the recovery program I think that's going to happen Uh, so my guess is that if this happens if we have this new gear it will be an opportunity to expand this band from two years to permanent. And it will be also a good moment to find alternative markets for fin fish and shrimp from the upper Gulf. I mean, chefs worldwide are, they want tractability and sustainability in in their kitchens. And this is a golden opportunity to make this happen for fishermen in the upper Gulf to sell their products as vaquita safe products.
0: Fantastic. So, yeah, it sounds to me like even though this emergency two-year ban that's been set up is not a permanent solution, um, it is something that will hopefully allow you and all the other folks who are involved in the key recovery efforts to have the time that is necessary to put together a, a permanent solution to to the issue, which was absolutely necessary, right? I mean, if this two-year ban hadn't gone into effect, um, you you wouldn't even have that time to figure out, you know, what what needs to be done and to develop this alternative, uh, or, or to sort of prove the effectiveness of this alternative gear and develop this market for you know sustainably harvested seafood from that region. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an a precedent
1: measure, and certainly a sort of signal of times changing. And I'm pleased with that. And also the fisheries department has been more helpful than in the past. So, uh, I I mean, it's the fisheries department who developed the alternative gear for shrimp and they're working together with NGOs to develop the alternative gear for finfish. So in, in that way, I think we're all very optimistic about it. Now, uh, enforcement, uh, and this is good news, uh, we've been monitoring enforcement in a way with many other groups and there are aerial surveys and I just received the report today in the morning before you called and they saw only two pangas and they were not fishing, they were close to coast and two weeks ago they had only two as well and from our monitoring we haven't seen pangas going, pangas are sorry, the artisanal fiberglass fishing boats for fishermen without board motors we haven't seen pangas go out from San Felipe. So it seems that like this new strategy that this government implemented, which was have enforcement be in charge of not one or two agencies, but seven agencies working coordinately. So you have the Navy, you have part of the Army, you have the Fisheries Department, the Attorney General for Environment. Uh, I federal police. It's like seven government agencies working jointly. So that seems to have been working. I mean, there are no pangas out. So if that continues this way and you expand the ban permanently, I mean, we are in very, very good shape to save Vaquita. And I think very important to me as Mexican is this would be a big, big success and signal from Mexico worldwide. Bycatch is the worst and the most dangerous threat to all marine mammals worldwide. So, having a, a success story will, I think, uh, encourage many other governments and many other groups to do what we are doing now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you, and, you know, if if you're able to establish a framework for the recovery of the vaquita that is effective, then that's that's going to be hugely beneficial information for other groups yeah, all around the world who are dealing with, uh, similar issues related to, to gillnet fishing. So, yeah, it's, it's fantastic to hear. And it's, it's, it's really amazing to hear about how effective, um, the enforcement has been, um, since this ban went into effect just a few months ago.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: because, you know, for, for myself, you know, learning about this issue, uh, uh, you know, fairly recently, um, that was my and, and, and learning about this two year ban that was about to go into effect, you know, that, that was my number one concern was, you know, are, are they really going to be able to enforce this? Right. Because a, a huge, I mean, all, all of the tatwaba fishing that we have been talking about, um, you know, leading up to this, uh, two year ban period. I mean, that was all illegal fishing, right? Because the tatwaba is considered endangered. So, you know, uh, Looking at this from an outsider, you know, you you would think, well, what effect is a two-year ban really going to have if most of the fishing that's impacting the is already illegal fishing? You just say, yeah, it's it's illegal. It has been illegal, and now it's even more illegal, (laughs) you know? I mean, so this – a a lot of folks have been talking about this two-year ban and how important it is. But, I mean, it's really the step up and the commitment to enforcement – from all these agencies within the Mexican government that you were talking about, that's that's probably the most important step that's been taken.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's very, as you said, it's m- even more illegal if you can say that to <laughs> to fish Vaquita. I mean, to to fish the Tuaba, and uh, uh, enforcement news are pretty positive uh, so far. Uh, uh, the only gillnet it's allowed right now is for Gulf Corvina, and they do it by uh, rodeo or encircle the the fish. And uh, from what we know, that doesn't kill vaquitas. But it's important to enforce that these gillnets are not used in other fishery when there's not, when there's no Corvina season. So that that should be uh, important to consider. So again, the permanent gil, uh the permanent gillnet ban. It's important to promote, and it's important to have developed the alternative gear and have all these economics considerations. But an important thing that I want to mention is that in this two year emergency gillnet, and then as I said, it's welcome I think worldwide. We strongly emphasize that during this period of two years, it's completely insufficient to determine if there are any effects of the current two-year ban to gillnets in Baquita abundance. And I mention this because we are really already hearing from some fishermen and some officers that they will have this two-year ban will demonstrate that it's not fishing. That kills vaquita because after the two-year ban, we will see that the population is very small. So again, there's n- no time for the vaquita to recover, and we don't have the scientific tools to detect three or four vaquitas in in a couple of years. I mean, it's impossible.
0: Right. Absolutely. It's definitely important that yeah to remember that even though this is. A really important step that's been taken towards the recovery of the vaquita. That it is not, and it, it is not a solution to yeah. to the issue. Um, it's sort of a stopgap measure to allow you and other folks involved in vaquita recovery to figure out what that long-term measure really is, or how to make this uh, uh, gillnet ban permanent. Um, so, yeah, that that is an absolutely an important point to make. Is, is, is there anything else that that we haven't touched on that that you think is important to uh, to include in this conversation here?
1: Yeah, I think one of the issues that uh, it, it, it's going to happen very soon is that the government has decided to fund a new vaquita survey, so we will estimate how population size of vaquita. 2015 this year, we will we'll start in September, mid-September and probably finish, finish by early December, it's about 64 days at sea and I think it's, this is a interesting moment because the results of this survey will have an impact I think in future conservation actions or in, in, the, in the future in the very short near future and so this is a big Effort and it's a joint survey with researchers from the Southwest Fisheries Science Center and my group, and we will have observers, which are people that dedicate their lives to identify marine mammals in the water. It's not that easy, so we will have observers from U.S., Europe, and Mexico to help. It will be. uh, We will have a very large ship that could house several. Uh, researchers and observers, and then we will combine that with the acoustic survey in shallow waters. Uh, We have sent our proposal to review by the world experts, and they all agree this is the best option to come with an estimate of vaquita. It's going to be a small population. We will not see many vaquitas. It will be difficult. But I think this is a good measure by the government to have a baseline to start working in future measures, I think the situation is really bad now, but uh, we need th- that survey is going to have an important impact.
0: Great. Well, yeah, that is definitely good to hear, and um, yeah, I, I, I'm actually hoping to uh, use this survey um, this coming fall as an opportunity to, to get down to that that region myself um, to, to get a little bit of footage for our documentary that, that we're working on about the vaquita. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, well, um, it's, it's been fantastic, Lorenzo, to hear about um, s- sort of the history and the progression of, of vaquita conservation over the past several decades from you. Um, and I, I, I definitely learned a few interesting things uh, through this conversation um, and, yeah, even though, like you say, uh, these solutions that are sort of in the works, in progress, you know, this two-year ban, this survey that's about to happen, you know, these are not sort of end solutions. They're not going to solve the problem of the key to recovery, but they're important steps forward, right? And they're steps that needed to be taken um, in order to, uh, uh, give the Vakita a chance at, at yeah. survival, and um, so even though we don't have that final solution to saving the Vakita, um, it, it it's really good to to see that these measures are being implemented, um, that the enforcement is um, is being effective, um, and you know basically that, that we have a little bit of time right to to, to figure out what that sort of um, what that final. Step will look like, and and how we'll ultimately be able to, to 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 bring this species back from the brink of extinction.
1: Yeah, that that, that that's true. It's uh, I think it's important times. It's incredible what where we are now. I mean, in in the conservation measures, but it's also in the dramatic decline of vaquita. So we don't have much time to save vaquita. It has to be now, or it will never be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well. It's been fantastic chatting with you, Lorenzo. And, um, yeah, your, your perspective is, is, is hugely, hugely valued um, by us and all of the work that you've been doing um, over the course of the past several decades to help save the Vaquita. Uh, thank you for that. Um, and, yeah, I, I look forward to continuing to, to chat with you in the future, um, you know, maybe having you on the podcast um, for, for future episodes to sort of get updates on, on how uh, how the recovery effort is going um, as, as time progresses um, and yeah just yeah, thanks a lot for everything you do and it was great having this conversation with you
1: well thank you for your interest it's, I think it's like Sean and you people who have a key to disseminate what we are doing and people realize that there's a unique species at the brink of extinction, that it's very close to the U.S., not that far away. And that this could be a turning point for vaquita conservation and to probably or hopefully would also have an impact in other areas and other species that are being bycut by fishing gear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> let's, let, let's leave it off on that note, hoping that this is a turning point um, for the vaquita. Thanks a lot. Good chatting with you, Lorenzo. Thanks, Matthew. Have a good day. All right. That was our interview with Lorenzo Rojas Rojasparacho from the National Institute of Ecology and Climate Change in Mexico. This interview was fascinating for me, not just because of the information that Lorenzo shared about the vaquita and its recovery efforts, but because of the insight into how conservation efforts work in Mexico. While there are certainly many similarities that we can draw to our system here in the U.S., there are also some important differences, and it will be important to keep these in mind as we move forward with Vaquita recovery efforts. This will be our final Vaquita-themed episode for a while. We'll continue to interview various Vaquita experts on the show over the course of our three-year production schedule for our new film, Souls of the Vermilion Sea, but this first Vaquita-themed month is close to its end. Which means, of course, that our Kickstarter campaign in support of our new documentary about the Vaquita is also coming to a close. The campaign ends on June 30th, just six days from the release of this episode. So if you haven't gotten that pledge in, now is your final opportunity. There are still lots of amazing reward items available, so be sure to check it out, share it around, and make a pledge. You can find the link to our Kickstarter campaign on the show notes page for this episode at WildLensInc.org slash EOC thirty. That's WildLensINC.org slash EOC thirty. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our Vikita theme song is by Ben Mirin.